Welcome to Important Not Important. My name is Quinn Emmett. And my name is Brian Colbert Kennedy. This is the podcast where we dive into a specific topic or question affecting everyone on the planet right now or in the next 10 years. Uh, If it can kill us or turn us into CRISPR robots, we're into it. Our guests are scientists, doctors, engineers, politicians, astronauts, Mm -hmm. even a reverend once. Mm -hmm. And we work together towards action steps that our listeners can take with their voice, their vote, and their dollar. That's you. This week's episode is a special timely replay as the new Congress is in session and shit is very, very real. Our question was, uh, Brian, what drives a man to give 200 climate speeches every week on the day in Congress? I guess to clarify, that's not really close. He doesn't give 200 climate speeches every Every, week. Right, right, right. No, he has given 200 climate speeches over the course of 200 weeks to the day in Congress. It doesn't matter. Our guest is Senator Sheldon Whitehouse. (laughs) He's the junior senator and all-around stellar human of the great state of Rhode Island. Uh, Senator Whitehouse was formerly a U.S. attorney and then later Mm -hmm. an attorney general for Rhode Island and has been a member of Congress since 2007. Mm -hmm. Uh, And you know what? He's currently moonlighting as some sort of Captain Planet figure, mm-hmm. but but mm-hmm. not Captain Planet. No, 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 weird, weird cat. We've talked about the. I feel like we could do a whole <laughs> after dark on Captain Planet. The intentions there, but phew, I don't know, creepy man. Anyway, Senator Whitehouse, not only super duper smart and uh, happy and eager to reach across the aisle, but boy, have we discovered recently uh, since this conversation aired, he is not afraid to call out folks for destroying our adorable little democracy. And plan it from the inside out. And he's, for that, I cherish him. He's like, a, like just Google Senator Whitehouse like talking in Congress at all. He's just like, mm-hmm. he's, he's, it's hilarious because he just gives no fucks. Gives zero fucks. Uh, yeah, yeah. He's fantastic. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's great. So going to need that going forward. Pretty excited. Um, so anyways, uh, let's go talk to Senator Sheldon Whitehouse. Let's do it. Our guest today is Senator Sheldon Whitehouse of the great state of Rhode Island. And together we're going to ask, what drives a man to give the same climate speech 200 times? Senator Whitehouse, welcome. Thank you. It is terrific to be with you both. We are very, very happy to have you. All right. So, Senator, uh, just quickly uh, tell us uh, who you are and and what you do. Uh, I am Senator Sheldon Whitehouse. I'm the junior senator from the state of Rhode Island, and uh, obviously I work in the United States Senate. Yeah, that's pretty succinct. That'll do it. <laughs> uh, groovy. So um, we're just going to uh, get our uh, conversation going uh, uh, for today. It's if, kind of it's, our, our ethos a little bit. Yeah, yeah. Um, if it, I think it's quite clear, uh, but if it isn't, um, it is a, we are any time for action right now, and, and the best action comes from provocative results-oriented questions. Uh, why? What if? How? Right, um, right. You know, questions that uh, shine a light on, on where we need to go um, personally or as a country or as a species. So we want to ask those questions and, and then formulate some specific steps that everyone here can take to uh, make a little dent in the, in the universe, if, if that works for you, Senator. Works for me. Awesome. Uh, so, Senator, we, uh, we start with one important question. Again, instead of saying, tell us your life story, uh, we want to get to the heart of why you're here today, both on the podcast, but also uh, existentially. So we like to ask, Senator, why are you vital to the survival of the species? <laughs> I love that reaction. <laughs> Good Lord, I hope, I hope I'm not. There are, I hope there are plenty of other people uh, weighing in. I do try to lean in uh, quite hard on climate issues in the Senate, because for a long time, there was no conversation about them. Um, And at times it was deeply, deeply aggravating and frustrating that the climate concern simply wasn't being addressed. So that's where I began the process of giving a weekly speech. If I didn't make my staff lock down that time every single week, it would have slid off into the valley of what gets pushed out by the news of the day. So that's why we locked it in. And just for the record, it's not the same speech. Every single one is different. Oh, well, I guess I meant the, 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 the theme of it. But regardless, uh, we, are, we are impressed by your dedication. And I appreciate the scheduling. I do the same thing uh, for Brian just to do podcasts. I think it drives him crazy. Otherwise, he'd just go off on a wander. 
You know, he goes off on a wander, and up. it's always something every day that distracts him. He's like a golden retriever puppy. So, but my anyways. intentions are good, and I'm adorable, <laughs> just like the puppy, okay? Just so needy. Um, right. So, look, uh, Senator, we're going to establish a little context for today's topic, uh, which means it's time for Context 101 with Professor Brian, which is a good, gentle reminder that Professor Brian is not, in fact, accredited professor and honestly has, has no accreditation at, whatsoever. Yeah, yeah, but I'm a man of the people. Yes. Uh, anyway, Senator, this is the thing we do. Brian explains the issue from his point of view. That is to say, from the point of view of our listeners, maybe aren't super nerds, but are interested and don't want, uh, for example, uh, you know, Waterworld with Kevin Costner to turn into an educational resource. Yeah, no. So we're going to give a little basic background and then we'll dive into the weeds with you. Uh, Brian, let's see what you got. <sighs> so climate change. Uh, not, not good. Not, not good at all. Not sure if we've mentioned that before. Great. Uh, <laughs> the, um, uh, the earth used to look a lot different. Okay. Uh, and there is a complex group of interconnected systems that have drastically changed over time. And, mm -hmm. and the, uh, the climate has always changed. Um, it, it used to be like oh, way hotter than it is now, for example, mm -hmm. uh, actually much of the world was covered in, in lava. <laughs> yeah, that's not great. No, 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 no. Um, and then at, at a different time, much of the world was covered in in dinosaurs. And that was yet, great. <laughs> maybe they'll come back. Um, at a different time, uh, uh, much of the world was covered in ocean, e even more so than now. Mm -hmm. um, uh, oh, here's a cool fact. Sharks are even older than dinosaurs. And that feels crazy to me, but I'm pretty sure it's true. Okay. Uh, male seahorses carry babies. Some fish glow in the dark. Okay. Okay, we got it. Yep. Yeah. The ocean's awesome. Ocean's awesome. Um, all right. There, there, are, there are underwater lakes and rivers, which I cannot even begin to wrap my mind around. I mean, the ocean is amazing. Uh, okay, sorry. <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> it used to be a, a hell of a lot colder here on Earth than it is now. Uh, there were icebergs ev everywhere. I think mm -hmm. everywhere. Um, and humans either didn't exist during any of these periods or barely survived them. Um, mm -hmm. Humans that we know of have never been able to actually affect the Earth's climate. Because that would be crazy. Uh, mm -hmm. Little humans able to affect the climate of a planet. Yeah, right. Seems crazy. Uh, turns out we did that, and it's not great. Climate change is happening. It is happening, and all those interconnected systems are under enormous strain, and every part of the Earth will be affected differently. Some parts are going to get much hotter. I mean, some parts are much hotter uh, and drier and more prone to fires, uh, which it, we're very California, aware of living in California. Some are going to get colder and, and wetter. Uh, some will experience more, you know, violent and, and impactful storms than ever before. Most folks didn't even know this was happening until about 30 years ago. So, some folks did, and, and some of uh, those folks were actually supplying the finite resources extracted out of the earth, uh, upon which we eagerly brought most of our entire civilization to the future. Right. Um, you know, the production and burning and use of those resources, fossil fuels. Uh, released and continue to release specific gases into the atmosphere. And most of us mm -hmm. didn't know that. But again, some did. They wrote it down on paper, which is <laughs> not a good idea. Right. Uh, and then they covered it up, which, uh, you know, you put it on the paper, man. Mm -hmm. <sighs> anyway, humanity has until very recently failed to act on the greatest threat to our existence, mm -hmm. mostly because, again, most of us just didn't know what we were doing and then partly later because we have mostly for the history of our species failed to spend money on prevention or the future and instead we just spend it in a purely reactive state if we even spend it at all mm -hmm. uh some of the action that has been taken uh has resulted in internal uh, international accords most of which are non-binding <sighs> yeah which we know all too well about um some of the action uh, has resulted in cities suing the fossil fuel companies. Not, not because they supplied those resources, but because they covered up the side effects of them. And mm -hmm. now those cities and the plaintiffs are projected to be le fucked. Right. Serge Dedina. Uh, right? Yeah, exactly. Like Imperial Serge in Imperial City. Uh, so, um, all right. So, so some more of the action uh, uh, has included a certain senator using his position to give 200 climate speeches on the floor of Congress to little mm -hmm. avail. Mm-hmm. And uh, the very first American state sued 14 of those fossil fuel companies last week. That Interesting. state has 400 miles of ocean shoreline under direct threat to sea level rise. Mm -hmm. And that senator that we mentioned comes from that same state, which I, mm -hmm. I don't know, sure feels like they're trying to sound the alarm bell. <laughs> uh, and that senator is on, is on the line and uh, has listened to this whole thing. And man, I hope it sounded all right. <laughs> 
<laughs> it sounded great. Uh, wow. I feel like this, as science educators everywhere should just print up the transcript of, of all of that and just put it straight into textbooks, Brian. Super, super happy to uh, make that available for anybody who needs it. Great, great. So with that, and thank you, Senator, what drives a man to give a climate speech every week of his tenure? Tell me, how, how long was it between getting elected and giving your first uh, climate action speech? Uh, it was a couple of years because we actually made progress early on. Mm -hmm. We were doing, a, I got elected in 2006, so I got sworn in in 2007. Mm -hmm. And 2007, 2008, and 2009 were actually pretty good years legislatively for climate stuff in the Senate. We did bipartisan hearings. We did bipartisan bills. We did bipartisan conferences. And um, one of the leading Republicans in the Senate, who was the Republican Party's presidential nominee, took a really good climate change platform into that election. So it all looked pretty good until 2010 came along. And in 2010, the Supreme Court decided a case called Citizens United. And Citizens United gave the fossil fuel industry a license to spend unlimited money in politics, and they went instantly to work to crush every little flicker of Republican interest in climate change. And they did. And we have been partisan on this issue ever since. And so my frustration grew through that period when the Republicans stopped working on this and actually, for a long time, Democrats didn't do much about it. So it was it was very a lot of frustration. Uh, that's understandable. You know, yeah. Citizens United. I I, I have yeah. such a vivid memory of President Obama. It was a State of the Union when he, he got up there and was talking about uh, and addressed the Supreme Court sitting in front of him specifically about Citizens United and and uh, and Justice Alito was shaking his head. Uh, it was just it seems like such an innocent time. Yeah, well, it was an innocent time because when you power up big special interests like the fossil fuel industry with the ability to spend unlimited money in politics and you don't police the fact that they are able to hide their identity when they do a lot of this spending, you end up with a really disgraceful state of affairs. And that's what we have going on right now. And that's the problem with bipartisanship on climate. So how did the first speech begin? What was the uh, the thesis behind it? The first one was basically just an intro to the science of it. And mm -hmm. for a long time, I just spoke about different aspects of the science. Then I began to drill into the oceans part of it, because the oceans are such powerful witnesses to climate change. And because the denial machinery has not done a good job of creating an alternative narrative about why the oceans are acidifying and warming and rising and uh, all of that. So that was a fruitful place. And then I went on to visit a lot of my Republican colleagues' states and bring home uh, the home truth from their states and what was happening with climate change, whether it's Utah losing the greatest snow on earth or Republican mayors down in the Keys desperately doing uh, climate work to prepare for sea level rise or the poor wretched New Hampshire moose wandering around with tens of thousands of ticks on them and their calves dying because of the uh, retreat of the snows. It, it, that was, you know, there have been a lot of different topics, but those were kind of the three early themes. Wow. It makes sense. How has it, if so, how has is, how is your, uh, your address changed over time with the with the Senate and the House changing hands? Well, I moved a little bit more to also trying to explain what was going on behind the scenes yeah. and trying to out the climate denial apparatus that the fossil fuel industry runs. They obviously don't call their climate denial apparatus the fossil fuel climate denial apparatus company. They <laughs> make... What was the old Looney Tunes thing, Acme? <laughs> exactly. They make up, you know, all these like sweet and touching names. They co-opt the names of founding fathers. They talk about heartland and heritage and all this stuff. Mm -hmm. And it's all a complete phony baloney load of crap. And um, so I started targeting the 
the machinery through which they deploy this effort as well. And and how successful has that outing been? Where have you seen successes? One success has been the we d- were able to develop uh, a bipartisan oceans caucus in the Senate, mm-hmm. and that was an idea that came to me when I was talking about oceans and trying to figure out what to do about oceans, and um, approached Senator Murkowski from Alaska about doing something bipartisan on oceans. She agreed, and we've gotten a lot done. Uh, we got the first marine plastic debris bill ever passed through the Senate. We got a whole bunch of fisheries treaties and a law passed about pirate and illegal uh, fishing, and we are circulating legislation now on ocean data monitoring. So that's been a spin-off success from this effort. In terms of uh, more direct benefit, I think my colleagues have come around to the even uh, begrudging admission that I am sincere and determined. (laughs) (laughs) Right. That he's not going to give up after three weeks. That actually has value in the Senate. People actually kind of think, oh, geez, well, I'm kind of a climate denier, but this White House guy, he is, (laughs) he's still talking and he's serious about it. And there's some credit for that. (sighs) I want to, if I could, I just want to swing back really quick to your, uh, how you're, you were mentioning that you're putting a lot of emphasis on the, how, the effects in the ocean. Your, your, your wife is a, has a PhD in marine biology, right? Yeah. She's really the one who knows what she's talking about on this stuff. Yeah. I was going to, you must, that must be such a great uh, influence for you. It's spectacular. She's really, really knowledgeable. And I've been involved um, sort of as a carrier <laughs> uh, in sure. her, in her work. Carry, take, please take this there. Please take that. Don't do too much thinking, but pull, lift, and carry. <laughs> right, right, exactly. You're like a Sherpa. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but as a result, I've had the chance to see her up close uh, in action doing her work. And it's very impressive to me to watch the marine science community do its thing. What in particular is she working on? Right now, she's working on trying to make sure that ocean planning is done in a sensible way. Uh, One of our victories in Rhode Island was that we got the first uh, offshore wind turbines up, built, steel in the water, electrons on the grid. And we did so because we developed a very good planning operation for siting it that came out of the entity that she used to chair. Uh, So that's been a pretty good thing to work on just, you know, good, sensible ocean planning. When we first met, she was studying a little shrimp and a larval winter flounder and how they interacted at the bottom of Narragansett Bay. But since then, Narragansett Bay has warmed up so much that they don't interact that way any longer. It's been one of the real-time changes that we've seen. Yeah, I saw some reporting recently on how uh, the lobster industry up there is, is going to change drastically in the next it's getting wiped out it's virtually dead in long island sound the connecticut fishery is more or less collapsed rhode island has had to go way offshore to find lobsters and the center of gravity of the lobster industry in maine is moving Mm -hmm. steadily up the coast as warming water um, makes it more and more difficult for lobsters to thrive pretty soon it'll probably be a canadian industry more than an american industry and that's a sad thing because a lot of people have come to Newport and enjoyed a good Rhode Island lobster over the years. Sure, and 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 it's easy to to make a cliche or a T-shirt out of out of lobsters in the Northeast, but um, you know, I don't think it's a small thing to say that that there are entire economies statewide and region wide built on on that on that crustacean. Yeah, people worked people worked hard, and they worked in all kinds of weather, and it's a, a difficult, challenging, and dangerous physical uh, work and uh, you you know it paid the mortgage and put the kids through school and people worked hard and were proud of their work and succeeded and now to see the thing that they have spent their uh, lifetime harvesting just evaporate out from under them is very distressing you know it's interesting and this is absolutely apples to oranges but it it does (laughs) Lobster fishermen were not poisoning uh, the air knowingly, but it does make you a little bit empathize with coal miners in the sense that, you know, this is something that generations of people have been doing, uh, families have been doing in, in very specific areas of the country, and it has been taken away and they've been only trained to do this, yada, yada. And 
where this is more of a optional thing that uh, the country is pursuing. I mean, optional in the sense that we have to do it or else we're toast. But at the same time, you can understand the angst a little bit of what am I supposed to do now and watching these towns crumble. It's almost uh, interesting foreshadowing for those for those areas. Yeah, the, um, the unfortunate thing about that is that the very best solution to the climate change problem is a price on carbon to tip the economy away from the subsidies fossil fuel has enjoyed and to give renewables a fair chance to grow and develop and thrive. And an adjunct of that is that very considerable revenues get brought into the government from the carbon uh, fees. And with those revenues, you could protect coal miners whose pensions have been devastated you could protect coal miners whose health plans have been devastated. You could allow coal miners the dignity of retirement, full benefits right now. You could uh, help bring investment to those towns. Heck, you could buy everybody who ever swung a pickup pickup truck. And you know, remember when uh, Huey Long said, every man a king? You could sure. make every miner a king with a tiny sliver of those revenues and the fact that the coal barons won't work towards protecting their own people and just want to protect their industry and their profits. And even if it causes their own miners to suffer is one of the sure. many uh, despicable pieces of conduct out of the fossil fuel industry in this whole saga. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, you know, it's, it's interesting. Uh, we, we've talked a little bit on the podcast about how the, uh, the failure of Washington state, to uh, to pass their carbon tax a few months back last year, oh, yeah. end of last year, beginning of this year, in a state that uh, is fully democratic. And it does seem clearly there's some sticking points, like where is the revenue going to go and how is it going to be spent um, that that Democrats and progressives are, are still arguing over. So it sounds like you're talking about a, a potential carbon tax revenue. Yes, and I, I apologize for not having the specifics, but is a carbon tax something a national carbon tax something you're behind are there specifics there i actually have a bill that proposes a i call it a carbon fee because one of the things that uh the republican um uh, green community small as it is um but the republican green community has demanded is that look you we can accept a price on carbon that is the market based solution to this problem sure but we can't have the revenues go just to fund more big government. So I don't right. particularly care to have both those fights at the same time. I want to solve the climate change problem. And if their way to solve the climate change problem is to say all the money goes back to the American people, I'm cool with that. And our bill does that. So I think that provides some uh, protection and it would make a far bigger difference than the clean power plan. It's much more effective so yes, I'm a I'm a I'm a fan of a carbon fee, and I call it a fee, not a tax, because tax goes to fund big government, and a fee sure. is just a fee that you pay, and it will go right back to the American public. Sure, and even any any you know conservative climate activist, whether they're in a position of power in Congress or not, or or, or a state legislature, uh, is never. <laughs> is never going to be able to publicly support something with the word tax in it. Fee right. fee we can work on. Yeah. And price we can work on. And the funny thing is, you know, we've got um, basically bipartisan agreement as to what the solution would be, which is this revenue neutral, border adjustable price on carbon. And we have a lot of uh, Republican senators who want to do something about climate change. And I know that because I talked to them about this. Mm -hmm. And between the senators who want to do something about this and the uh, remedy that we uh, are likely to agree on, there is this barbed wire electrified wall with guard towers that is policed by the fossil fuel industry with the weaponry that Citizens United gave them. And they will tell these guys, look, you are dead if you cross us on this. And it's just been really, really hard for Republicans to try to work their way around that, particularly given the example of people like Bob Inglis, who did, in fact, lose their seats when they had the temerity to take climate change seriously. So they've hung a body on the lamppost to show all sure. the others. 
Bob was one of our uh, was actually one of our first guests, and yes, we talked was. a lot about that. Which is what well, you know, essentially for these for these folks, what are they willing to risk to push for action? So, if we can get the details for a second, I'm curious how specifically does the revenue go back uh, to the American people in your bill? The bulk of it goes back through uh, an offset to the payroll tax, mm-hmm. uh, with a similar uh, benefit that flows through. Uh, Social Security and through the Veterans Administration for retirees who aren't on the, you know, paying the payroll tax any longer. Mm-hmm. And then there's a chunk of it, about 20 percent, maybe, that goes back through to the states so that the individual state can work on what is most important to it. What the state of West Virginia is going to want to do in response to a carbon price is going to look very different from what the state of Rhode Island is yeah. going to want to do. It's going to look very different from the state of Wyoming is going to want to do. It's going to look very different from what the state of Arizona is going to want to do. And all of those governors and legislatures are um, going to need some resources to help them solve those localized problems. So that's the, sure. it goes back with, with a bank shot off of the state government, uh, but not, 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 not to fund big increases yeah. in the federal government. Gotcha. Sure, sure. What happens to, to current uh, clean air and, and water regulations in your bill? At the moment, we don't have any reference to that in the bill. Um, yeah. I don't want to bargain against myself. I'm very aware that in a negotiation, there's going to be uh, an interest in getting rid of some of the regulations. And frankly, that should be a fact-based conversation in which if you can show that the interstate transport rule, for instance, becomes unnecessary because we've done so much better with the carbon price than that rule could ever do, then I don't care that much to defend rules for rules sake. I like the rules because they keep people healthier. And if we've done a better job, but I don't want to start negotiating that until I've got somebody to negotiate with. And at the moment, the guards in the guard towers with their Citizens United machine guns are still yeah. telling everybody in the Republican side, don't negotiate, don't get involved with any of this. And it's really tiresome because you've got the CEOs of oil companies saying, hey, we understand that climate change is a real problem and, and we know that our product causes it and we support a price on carbon. And having to hear that nonsense while I'm here watching their damn lobbyist and electioneering forces fight sure. exactly against that proposition they claim to support, sure, it can get frustrating to see them lie like that. That's a very gentle way of putting it. Um, so, and we'll get back to the future and what could happen when, when maybe some of those folks aren't in office. Um, what, is there... Any action on current fossil fuel subsidies in the bill? Nothing specific. This so overwhelms them that it's basically a way of remedying. Let's put it this way. It's a way of remedying the biggest fossil fuel subsidy of them all, which is the right to pollute for free. And that has been evaluated by the International Monetary Fund at a $700 billion per year subsidy just in the United States alone to the fossil fuel industry, $700 billion. So, Incredible. yeah, and when you look at all this denial of machinery that they've set up, when you look at all these fraudulent front groups and all the phony scientists that they trot out to wear a lab coat onto a talk show, all of that nonsense is cheap compared to $700 billion a year. You could afford an enormous amount of political mischief for that money, and they do. Sure, sure, absolutely. Um, So... Let's go back to the speeches for a sec. It, it's 2018 now, as far as I can tell. Uh, even though it feels like the year is never going to end. Uh, you've got years of these speeches under your belt. And, you, and like you said, you've, you've done state-specific stuff. You've talked about the science. You've tried to call out some of the folks who are undermining any efforts to get anything done. H- has there been a moment so far when you felt like, this time is different. I'm getting through to these morons. Anything? There have been a couple. There have been a couple. There have been... Um... Private conversations in which senators have verbally agreed to work with me on a climate bill, uh, gotten together to have bipartisan meetings, very secret ones, to talk about what to do on a climate bill. 
engaged with groups that I know what they're doing because I'm basically running around behind enemy lines trying to help the Republican resistance, uh, try to get something done about climate. So there's, I mean, I wouldn't do this if I couldn't keep my optimism up. And there's always something on the horizon, in some cases, even the very near horizon, that gives me hope. The latest thing is these three Treasury secretaries, Schultz, Paulson, and Baker, having mm-hmm. stood up a 501c4, which for people who don't know it, is basically the political equivalent of a Sherman tank. Mm-hmm. It is what you use to go out onto the political battlefield and do warfare. And the good guys on the Republican side had none of that until very recently. And the bad guys on the Republican side looked like a Soviet May Day parade of political artillery. So this group, this new 501c4 showing up to support Republicans who want to do something about climate could be, you know, a pretty significant tipping point. It's got big entities like Walmart uh, Mm -hmm. supporting the group. And so if you're a Republican who is looking for somebody, anybody to have your back on climate change, maybe that somebody just showed up. That's super compelling um, because as much as I'm sure some of these people just are super villains and like oil for oil's sake and dirty air, uh, you have to imagine for some of them, it's a little more callous and it's just about how many uh, dollars are in their bank account. And, um, you know, if it's coming from a good source, then sure, we'll take it as much as I despise money and politics. Um, I guess, you know, it's a little bit like steroids in baseball. We have to we have to play the game. Oh, that's a whole other conversation we can get into. And if, if yeah. you know, a lot of these people, if you know you're going to get pounded if you do this today, then why not wait just until tomorrow and see if something has changed? And the problem is those tomorrows pile up. These are people who aren't against it. They just have a form of sort of um, heightened procrastination, threat-heightened procrastination. Sure. Tomorrow could be a safer day to <laughs> take this on. Why pick this fight right this minute? Sure. Of course. So, sp- speaking of tomorrow, actually, you, skeptics say that you, you, even if even if Democrats were to to take back the House and, um, you know, simultaneously gain even a little uh, a slim majority in the Senate, that, that nothing uh, would get done. Or if it did, it wouldn't be enough. Right. So. So let's imagine November 6th, things go at least moderately well for Democrats and progressives, uh, at least the very least climate activists. Imagine that you've suddenly got 50 other uh, Democratic colleagues in the Senate and they're going to be sworn in soon, which seems crazy and (laughs) so far off. But it really wasn't that long ago when that was the case. What is your first course of action, Senator, with regard to climate and I guess specifically your bill? The likeliest scenario is probably that the House will turn to Democratic hands and that the Senate will be very close, but may not. So legislation would likely begin in the House. It would likely be drafted with the view that the Senate's going to ultimately have a voice and we need to work on it. Would likely be bipartisan in the House because there are enough Republican congressmen who uh, are kind of desperate on this subject because they represent the Florida Keys or the city of Charleston or mm-hmm. some place in Arizona that's on fire that they have to pay attention finally. And mm-hmm. so now you've got a potentially bipartisan bill that has been worked with the Senate uh, to a degree that comes out of the House and it comes rolling down the uh, middle of the Capitol building and crashes up against the doors of the Senate. It becomes really tough at that point for Mitch McConnell to refuse to give it any kind of a hearing. And it puts all of us as Democrats in a position to have something serious to push for and to take more aggressive floor action with an actual immediate goal in mind. And that's a that's a big move because that's that's Mitch's go to move is just we're not going to talk about it. <laughs> Call up the fossil fuel guys and get them to spend tens of millions of dollars beating up Democratic senators. That's his go to sure. move. Sure. So uh, he'd have to give up that particular weapon, and that would not be easy for him. So this would not be easy. But one other thing that's happening out there is that the the oil companies in particular are getting frightened of their liability, of their litigation risk. 
Not only the outcome of being sued for creating a public nuisance or for lying to their shareholders, but actually the process where you get to the point where you've got to cough up your files. you got to show people the memos that you wrote right. to your scientists telling them to shut up about the science, the notes that you wrote to your lobbyists telling them, like, even now, I know we're saying we want a carbon price. We don't go squash anybody that tries to... Uh, put a carbon price forward on the Republican side. When all that stuff comes out, they're going to look really, really bad. So they're frightened, I think, about all of that. I think they're frightened about the economics and the stranded assets carbon bubble problem. And I think there comes a time where some of the cooler heads in the oil industry start to say, okay, we've had our run with Congress. We've had our way for a long time. Now we kind of have to throw in the towel and behave like grownups. We've said we supported a carbon fee. Now we have to actually support a damned carbon fee. So that could break. And then if you get that moving and you got something bipartisan, you then go up to Trump and you say, hey, by the way, you were the guy who took out an advertisement in the New York Times that said the science of climate change was irrefutable and that said that the consequences of climate change would be catastrophic and irreversible. We want that guy back. And because the guy, he has no principles, so he could easily say, oh, yeah, I'm that guy now. <laughs> right. And, and so this, so I guess that's a question. And this is complete, completely unpredictable. But after all that, uh, and again, the answer just might be like, who the hell knows? But what does that legislation have to look like for Trump to actually sign it? Do we have any idea? I don't think he has any substantive concerns about anything at all. It's all what does the press conference look like? And what does the press around it look like? And is this finally the big deal that he promised he would be able to do? And I do think that it would be very helpful if he felt that he could go through uh, the Appalachian coal fields and deliver everybody their Trump pickup truck free certificate and let them know that they can retire right this minute, full pension, full benefits, and that they sure. can get onto a like GI Bill type program for their kids uh, to sure. go to college. And I mean, you could for very, very little money come through coal country like a, a king handing out just all sorts of golden and uh, tribute wherever you went. And I think if you gave him a moment like that with people cheering and saying, you know, thank goodness you saved my family, you saved my house. I can now do the thing I've always wanted, which is a really dignified retirement and the pension that sure. I banked on and and uh, go hunting or do sculpture or, you know, work in my wife's company or do whatever else I want to do. Sure, sure. And fine, you know, if, if that's the win he wants, great. Whatever whatever gets us there. We're, we've developed such an attitude of whatever the means are at this point that get us there. It's not worth baking the planet to deny this clown a victory. No, it's not. It's not. So do you feel like, and again, knowing that that's totally unpredictable, do you feel like these theoretical future Senate colleagues of the same uh, flavor as you have the backbone to keep passing legislation regardless of whether he signs it to show your constituents and the American people in the world that we're actually trying, that we actually give a shit? Yeah, I think think they might. I think that the tipping point could come quite soon. I know that the oil majors are discussing actually supporting a full-on, like, $40 per ton price on carbon. Mm -hmm. And if they actually do support it, and this isn't just more of their game of saying they support a price on carbon while instructing their political and electioneering operation to destroy any such notion. Yep. But if they're serious, then I think that shifts things for a lot of uh, Republicans. And that opens the door and it makes it a lot harder for the uh, gun towers to be credible. It's like opening the fence at the end of the at the end of the incarceration. They can walk out free into the sunshine and see uh, there's the getaway car, the carbon price that's border adjustable and revenue neutral and everybody's good. I'm pretty sure that's just the ending of the Shawshank Redemption, but we're going to go with it. I had that in mind, to tell you the truth. I've seen too many movies. Perfect. And I've seen that one like 19 times. So, I mean, who hasn't? It's on TNT it's like one. every day. And it's fantastic. 
So, by the way, if, if why not why not do it now? Uh, you know, even if we keep losing the vote, and I know there's strategy to it, and and uh, we're just uh, hopeless romantics who don't want to melt. <laughs> we don't get to call anything up now because we don't have any yeah. gavels. So that's the problem. As soon as we get gavels, then we can call something up. Sure. And, um, yeah. you know, know that we're not just designing legislation for decorative purposes. We can actually put it to the floor. Sure. And then you can say, hey, we've tried, uh, right. you know, but the orange guy keeps turning it down. So let's pivot a little bit. Talk to me a little bit about the lawsuit coming out of the great state of Rhode Island this week. Obviously, you work with the federal government um, and it's a state lawsuit, but you used to being attorney general. Um, uh, can you give us a brief uh, explanation of that suit? We've talked a lot about it. We've actually interviewed uh, Mayor Serge Dedina of Imperial Beach here. Uh, tell us how Rhode Island's suit is different than the lawsuits that were tossed out recently uh, and the ones that are still standing. I think the core part of the lawsuit is the issue of, of public nuisance and whether the CO2 emissions of power plants and the CO2 emissions of tailpipes that the industry knew about have created a public nuisance that the industry has a responsibility to abate in any way. I think that as a legal matter, that argument probably holds up. Some of these cases have gone to federal court on the grounds that federal clean air law and so forth has preempted state public nuisance law. And if that's the case, it probably dies in the federal courts. But in state court, it looks pretty good. And as you probably know, the California State Supreme Court just let stand a public nuisance verdict uh, to the lead paint companies, treating lead paint mm -hmm. as a public nuisance. So that mm -hmm. provides a roadmap for litigants to follow to plead a uh, state-level climate public nuisance. And I think that's the road the attorney general in Rhode Island is, is following. I think it stands a, a very credible chance of success. And even more to the point and more immediately, it adds to the pile of litigation risk that these companies face and particularly the dreaded day when they have to actually turn their files over and show what they've been saying secretly all along, because that happened at the tobacco industry years ago, and sure. that was the end of their credibility. And I think the same thing is going to happen uh, with these guys. They ExxonMobil, if you can believe it, actually went into court in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts and told a superior court judge who had probably driven by an Exxon station that morning on her way to the courthouse that they did not do business in Massachusetts, and therefore they could not be pursued by the Massachusetts Attorney General. That's I mean, incredible. yeah, that's, a, that's, that's what a lawyer would call an Eppin Hail Mary. They clearly are in a state of panic. They're clearly in a state of panic when they're throwing those kind of arguments out. Yeah, absolutely. So, all right. Uh, I, I know we've taken up a ton of your time here. So what our listeners need to know is, and, and they're, you know, across the country, across the world, what they can do to help. And these people, they've taken so many action this year, a lot of folks for the very first time, uh, the list of things they've they've had to do and, and have stepped up to do is getting long and honestly, super annoying at this point. Uh, but climate change is the one thing that can melt or, or, or sink us all. So aside from yeah. just vote on November 6th, what else are you telling your constituents and, and or, or are things that we can help express from this platform uh, that people need to be doing specifically? I think the most helpful thing that people could be doing right now is to hold big business accountable for its lobbying in Congress. And I've already described how the fossil fuel industry, through the oil companies specifically, that have claimed to support a carbon price are, in fact, busily trying to make sure that no such thing happens on the side through their political and electioneering operations. What is less well known is that enormous American industries like the tech sector, Google, Microsoft, Apple, Facebook, come to Washington to lobby and despite having really good climate policies, they don't, they don't say a word about climate change. And I've been chasing them for years to have their group TechNet 
actually use the word climate change in your lobbying presentation. Right. Just sure, say it. Sure. Come on, be a man. And, and all of these companies have put out so many press releases, and it's great that they're all unfunded, you know, powered entirely by renewable energy. Uh, but use that clout in a different way. Use the clout uh, in Congress where the problem is that is keeping climate legislation from being passed. Coke and Pepsi are my other two favorite examples. They do their lobbying through the American Beverage Association, which mm -hmm. doesn't spend a, a nickel in support mm -hmm. of climate legislation, and which, in fact, yeah. through which, in fact, they run money to the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, which is our number one enemy on climate change. So here you've got these companies that have a really good position on climate everywhere except in Congress, where their net lobbying position is hostile to their own publicly stated position. And you can go on to the lumber industry and the timber industry. And sure. They obviously sure. have a huge stake in this. Nope, nothing. You can go on to the people who write the checks, the property casualty insurance industry. Nothing. Sure. There's got to yeah. be an accountability moment where if you want to get the support of American consumers who are concerned about climate change, you got to own your lobbying. And if it does not align with your stated position on climate change, you've got to correct that. I, hey, I love that. Absolutely. Absolutely. We're walking the walk here. Yep. It uh, shouldn't um, be asking a big American corporation too much to align its lobbying and electioneering effort with what is stating its actual position is. That should not be asking too much. Absolutely not. All right. I know we're getting so close to, to time here, Senator. Um, we, we, first of all, just thank you so, so very much for, for being Absolutely. with us today and chatting with us. Uh, is there is there anybody uh, else, uh, you know, defending the world that we that we should talk to? Oh, there's some really, you know, I think uh, Brian Schatz is my co-author on the uh, carbon uh, price bill. Awesome. Senator from Hawaii, Ed Markey, was yep. uh, had his heart broken after uh, Waxman Markey passed the House and the Senate failed to even take it up. We had a Democratic-controlled Senate, and we had a Democrat in the White House, and we had a bill through the House for climate change, and we didn't even bother. It makes me ill. So Markey's now over here in the Senate, and he's been a great ally. Tom Carper has been our leader on the EPW committee. There's been some really, awesome. really good, really, really good work done. Awesome. Well, we might hit you up for some for some intros uh, yeah. on those, if that's all right. However, you guys, I don't know if you guys have like a special Senate instant messenger or something or you communicate. <laughs> um, uh, so, Senator, just a, a couple quick last questions, kind of a lightning round. When was the first time in your life when you realized you had the power of change or the power to do something meaningful? Uh, I, when I went to work at the in the attorney general's office in the uh, state of Rhode Island. And was able to, as a young lawyer, help make things happen that could change the way Rhode Island worked. And then I went up to the state house as a legal counsel for the governor, and it went. It really opened up. And um, mm -hmm. so I, I learned the power of change as a young lawyer. I love it, Senator. Who is someone in your life that's positively impacted your work in the past six months? In the past six months. I would yes, say one of my most helpful uh, friends in the Senate has been, I'll mention two. One is Lindsey Graham. Okay. Not the answer I saw coming, but please, please proceed. <laughs> no, Lindsey's been doing good stuff with me on uh, letting our subcommittee of the Judiciary Committee look into various R Russia election infiltration stuff. And mm -hmm. then my colleague from Alaska, Dan Sullivan, was my co-author of the Marine Plastic Debris Bill. And you're, you're going to fall out of your chairs, but an, op the orig an, an original co-sponsor of our Marine Plastic Debris Bill mm -hmm. was none other than Jim Inhofe of Oklahoma. The, the, come on, uh, Senator. I Senator. kid you not. We have a no bullshit policy. There's no on reason this for these blatant lies. When we did the hearing <laughs> on the bill and he walked through the door into the EPW committee, I just, my head fell onto the counter. I said, damn it. Why did you, why did you even have to show up? You're from a square state. You don't have a coast. Couldn't you just stay away and leave us alone? What? We were having such a good hearing. And then oh, this is a story of like prejudgment because he listened to the witnesses. And it turns out that as a boy, he'd gone down to the Texas coast 
and he has a real affinity for sea turtles. He used to stand out on the oh, beach, shit. stand out on the beach with a flashlight, waving away the jeeps and trucks driving up and down the beach so they wouldn't squash the little sea turtles headed for wow. the sea. And he well, knows about the sea turtles being caught in plastic debris, and he right. liked the hearing, and he said, "I'm I'm in." That's amazing. I mean, I <laughs> see that just goes to show you what happens. Brian, I told you, when you assume, what does it do? It potentially all, yeah, takes away nope. someone who could vote to not kill the planet. I told you. You tell me that every day. So Brian uh, has, Brian has I, his one last favorite question. I have Senator. one last question. We're such big fans of this question, Senator. Um, if you could Amazon Prime one book to Donald Trump, what would it be? Oh, boy. Anything. We've gotten everything from the little <laughs> prince to the Constitution to... Uh, y- you name it. We've got some. We've got some Harry good Potter. <laughs> and again, this is assuming that someone will read it to him. Oh boy! I, I mean, this is such a wild question because I'm trying to p- pick a reading level before I even <laughs> Look, before I even go have, there. What was the Doctor Seuss one about books. the? Uh... It could be an audio book. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> I'd go with Silent Spring. Okay. Silent Spring. Awesome. We will put it on the list. Senator, where can our listeners follow you online? On Twitter, Sen White House. Mm-hmm. And then uh, you can go to whitehouse.senate.gov or you can go to just Senator White House on uh, Facebook. Awesome. Awesome. Excellent. Uh, well, we know you're out of here. Senator, we cannot thank you enough for your time today and for all that you've done, you've been doing in, in anticipation of leading the way on climate action in hopefully a few months. Let's keep our fingers crossed. Opti- you never, you always do better in a fight when you're optimistic. So stay optimistic. It seems Absolutely. like a, a theme you've been sharing this whole episode and it's been uh, very inspirational. So thanks an awful lot. Uh, we appreciate it, Senator. Thank you so much and uh, have a great day, sir. We will talk to you soon. Okay. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you both. Thanks to our incredible guest today, and thanks to all of you for tuning in. We hope this episode has made your commute or awesome workout or dishwashing or fucking dog walking late at night that much more pleasant. As a reminder, please subscribe to our free email newsletter at importantnotimportant.com. It is all the news most vital to our survival as a species. And you can follow us all over the internet. You can find us on Twitter at importantnotimp. Just so weird. Also on Facebook and Instagram at Important Not Important, Pinterest and Tumblr, the same thing. So check us out, follow us, share us, like us, you know the deal. And please subscribe to our show wherever you listen to things like this. And if you're really fucking awesome, rate us on Apple Podcasts. Keep the lights on. Thanks. Please. (laughs) And you can find the show notes from today right in your little podcast player and at our website, importantnotimportant.com. Thanks to the very awesome Tim Blaine for our jamming music, to all of you for listening, and finally, most importantly, to our moms for making us. Have a great day. Thanks, guys. Thanks.